Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of Capital Generation Partners, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions posed by our clients in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are go-anywhere investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world, from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street, and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. So November so far has been a good month for equities if you choose to assess what you feel about equities by what's going on uh, in the S&P 500. And that is in the context of what looks like a good year so far in equities. Again, if you particularly use the S&P 500 after the, the mini swoon of August, September and October, we're, we're back to business as usual. Um, so, Robert, there's been a lot of coverage within that of the the Magnificent Seven, which is why I particularly mentioned the S&P, because they've almost single-handedly driven US equity performance in uh, 2023, but also in, 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 in November. And they are, they're, not, they're not just large cap, they're mega cap stocks, and they grow ever more mega. Meanwhile... At the other end of the spectrum, we have the smaller cap stocks, which have been notably weak. And you've talked about this uh, a good deal as as a, as a potential opportunity. But could you just remind us again, Laura, what, why do you think this divergence is quite so stark what, what, and quite so enduring? Yeah, I think t- two points on that would be to say, yeah, the numbers do really stand out. When we look at those big um, Magnificent Seven, the FANG stocks, they're up about 100% for the year. Now, all the other stocks, um, to that point, it feels like a good year. After the bit of a bounce back slightly in November, the equal weight MSCI is basically up 2.5%. Uh, the Russell 2000 small cap, again, around up 2% for the year. So most stocks are sort of around flat, while it has just been that handful of stocks that have really um, driven returns um, over this year. And I think even when we say this year, it's worth putting, again, that in context. Most of that move was in the first six months of the year to June. Since June, as as we've talked about, there's been a sell-off. And then really this month is just bouncing back um, some of the drop uh, uh, over the preceding three months. So really, the story of this year in terms of that outperformance was the first six months of the year. Uh, those stocks really, really sort of taking off. And I think in terms of how they've taken off, though, we have to remember 2022 was a really bad year for them. So again, they're, they're sort of back to where they were um, from from uh, g- going into um, the sell-off in 2022. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we've seen a big bounce back, because they were quite sold on the way down. So they sold a lot in, in 2022. I think the other big reason that we can't, um, forget is really AI. AI was the story of the first six months of the year. And that's why we've had this optimism that really has seen this big divergence. The, re- the, the other 493 stocks in the S&P 500, their valuations are a little expensive, but not terribly so. Whereas it is the very high sort of 20, 29 times average earnings for those, those seven stocks. Um, and 
the optimism is what can justify those earnings is that they will be the big beneficiaries of uh, this new AI boom and productivity gains that we're expecting to see. So I suppose despite underneath the surface, we've seen this slowing towards the end of a cycle and the threats of recession arising at the the heart of it, uh, what sort of hid that was you went into the year with those mega stocks pretty cheap or relatively cheap compared to their past history. Some of some of them very cheap, like Facebook. Um, And then you've had a good sort of story and and trend about about AI, which has buoyed them. But I think the third component to say more recently, which is why it becomes slightly counterintuitive, is that threat of recession is now in people's minds. So we're seeing in the data, the economy is clearly starting to slow finally in the US. It's been slowing in Europe for quite a while before, as we've talked about on these calls. And the thought really, and why small caps are really quite, undervalued and quite cheap. Indeed, that small cap to the large cap spreads are as cheap really as they've been at other big bear market bottoms like um, sort of 2008 and and, and before. We, we're really seeing some relative cheapness in small cap, which makes it look very appealing. But um, the thought really is, if we're going to recession, where's your source of protection? And the conditioning really of the last 20 years has been you go to those mega caps who've got earnings, which will see you through, and then they'll act a bit more defensively. So it, what we have seen is a bit of a beat up of some of the cyclical names and some of the smaller names with weaker balance sheets. But those larger cap names have been the beneficiaries. Now, why I said it's slightly counterintuitive is um, the, the, the problem, obviously, is what's benefiting those stocks is you see, uh, really getting back to those growth trades because we've seen falling rates. So threat of recession, rates which have gone up a lot this year, started to fall, and they've been the beneficiaries. But the problem and where we see we need to see resolution is rates can't keep going down with this threat of recession without a hit to earnings. So I think that's the the the, the sort of tension that we're going to face, is if the economy does start to weaken, then you really can can be hit from, from the top line growth element. So in a way, I think the point you're slightly making there Robert is is the market's actually done quite a good job of adjusting the valuation of small cap stocks for the possibility of bad news ahead and yet hasn't quite carried that thought through into the mega caps or if it has it's been outweighed by the positive enthusiasm of uh, of AI and also this sense that there'll be these stocks and those around them will be resilient. And I think when I think about, we've talked about parallels between where we are now and uh, 99, 2000 and the dot-com boom, and there are similarities. One of the differences, however, is that the, as we've often said in these in these podcasts, the companies we're talking about are extraordinary companies. They are really, really fantastic. They have amazing products. They're superbly run. They're growing, generating revenue, profitable, and definitely positioned uh, to benefit from what we all know is sort of lies lies ahead of us. So yes, there are parallels with with ninety nine two thousand in terms of valuation levels to some extent, but there are also non parallels because I think again, bit of a generalisation, but overall the quality of companies is better, or the foundations perhaps are perhaps are stronger. Um, so 
with that in mind, what does it take to uh, to cause some sort of turnaround in small cap stocks? Are you, are you essentially saying, Rob, we're going to sort of wait this out for a while? We can't expect any near-term closure of that mega cap, small cap uh, spread. Well, I think that's that's where a lot of news is priced in and then what happens if things turn out slightly differently. So what, what the market is pricing in effectively at the moment is we're having recession, but the Fed is going to rapidly come to the rescue and cut rates very quickly. And we're sort of going back to that trade of falling rates by those mega caps and that's where, where your growth is. Now, that could be wrong in a number of different ways. And that's when do you want to go long small caps? I think, well, there have been some pockets of small caps which have done really well even in the last couple of years. So if you small cap quality has done quite well comparatively. Um, but more broadly, you do need to see the economic um, turnaround happen. So recession starts to feed through into um, to growth. So one scenario is if the recession is a lot milder than people think, Actually, where you want to be then is those cyclical names, is the small cap value, and that will rally um, very hard. So, again, there's a lot of talk about soft landing. I think one of the best things to do, if you, if you look at past recessions, there's always the most talk about soft landing just before the recession hits. So it, it isn't unusual for that to be the case. But let's say the soft landing is right. You would prefer to be probably in those, those smaller cap value names um, or merging markets, rest of the world, um, compared to um, compared to the Fang names, and I think on Fang as well, it's not all that all the good news is could be priced in. Is actually AI can be a threat to some of those companies. Let's think about Google's business model. The search model is going to be fundamentally disrupted and changed, and they may become a winner. And they certainly had a lot of the technology and people and process in place. But so far, they've been a bit behind the curve of where they could have been. Maybe they've been taking taking it, um, trying to not make a mistake. Um, but again, execution in strategy can happen. And if, it, if they don't execute properly, if there's a failure of execution, then that uh, that certainly isn't priced into the uh, on the downside of some of those stocks. So Small cap probably does need a turn to do better, and that change environment may or may not be um, good news for the for the larger cap names. Um, but similarly, again, what what else can provoke if we're thinking what's uh, behind some of these market moves? Maybe it's the threat of recession, but equally, it could be actually the threat of a banking crisis. And there's certainly stress within the banking sector when we're looking at how um, uh, looking at share prices, looking at the amount of impaired um, loans and bonds on their um, on their balance sheets. And if that really is the threat and the Fed does cut earlier than would be warranted from economic growth, actually, again, that could be really good for the most beaten up stock. So I think both scenarios, even in a um, the, the, the sort of light recession or a banking crisis precipitates early policy action, both of them could be quite good for, for the small cap stock. So I think you do need a change, and it's either changing the economy, changing policy, or um, some some uh, action within the financial sector. Um, but when that change does occur, you want to, the, the, the sectors which have the best um, best tailwind behind them will be the, the smaller cap value stocks rather than some of those mega cap. And within the mega cap, I think that somebody told me the, uh, everyone's talking about Magnificent Seven. I think we've got to remember the film um it didn't 
work out well for all of the seven. They didn't all live, uh, did they? No, so there may be three, <laughs> a handful of them that make it through at the end. But certainly, I think the, if you're making a, a projection, you'd expect um, you know some of them are going to fail. Um, so I think you've got to bear that in mind uh, when you're when you're sort of placing your bets. So you, you, you rightly, Robert, sort of slightly unpicked the very wide descriptor of small cap and drew a distinction example between small cap quality and, and small cap value. And, and I think you know small cap quality is done okay. The opportunity that lies ahead is in small cap and value, which is at the intersection of two things we've talked about, both the value trade but also the small cap trade. Could you just... Uh, what would such a company look like? I mean, perhaps not individual uh, stock name, but can you sort of describe to us what a small cap value business would look like? Uh, how would we recognise it? Or is it, is it only really recognisable in the way in which the market's pricing it? How, how, how do you think about that? So I think there's, this is why we sort of have value, has multiple definitions. And I think it's worth bearing that in mind. You can sort of have Quantitative value, where you're looking at price to book, price to earnings, price to free cash flow, and you're wanting cheap optical um, uh, sort of counting ratios. And there, rather than having sort of high double digit ratios, you're going to be having low single digit or or sorry, uh, single digit or low double digit ratios on a lot of those those metrics. and I think because it's so widespread, you can make money that way. And I think this is why in our portfolio, we don't just view value one way. So there we have an ETF that can target that exposure in a cheap, in a cheap way. And one would expect that type of um, exposure to give you um, sort of excess returns above uh, MSCI world over the coming years ahead. But I think the problem with that is, well, twofold. One is, you um, again, you have sector neutral or not sector neutral. If you have non-sector neutral um, portfolios, you end up with a lot of energy, a lot of banking sector stocks. Um, they're the ones that have the low P ratios. Some of it quite rightly, uh, because there's a lot of fundamental change. They're less quality businesses. The cash flows aren't like to extend to the future. Even having said that, I think to, to what we talked about before, actually, they're so beaten up now. The miners, the energy miners, the metal miners, thinking about gold mining stocks, which fit within that bucket. Um, there's plenty of opportunity actually in the, in the environment ahead for, for those stocks to do really well. And indeed, there have been one famous hedge fund manager who's had to change his strategy um, in, in, um, uh, in terms of being a value investor. He now realizes the market, he used to be able to make that money by buying them cheaply and the market would reprice on earnings. So it would, it, the mechanism was working really well. They were, they were cheap. The earnings surprised a bit better or some of the bad news turned out to be not so bad. And then you'd make your quick 20, 30, 40, 50% in, in a quarter. Now, and the last, certainly in the last five years, that's for that type of value investing, that's just not worked. The, the mispricing has stayed wider for longer. Um, so his change in strategy has been to target those really cheap companies where you don't rely on the catalyst and you can afford to wait it out. And eventually, just being so cheap, um, which I think is good news for, for the value um, investing folk, is that the, the easier strategy is starting to, to work. But what I think I, I would say is most of our exposure is sector neutral because the value stocks are not just those optically cheap single-digit P companies. So they can also look um, like those um, tech companies. So tech companies can actually become value companies. And that's where, actually, at the start of the year, you could have benefited from some of the Magnificent Seven by buying, say, a Facebook 
which was was trading on a lot cheaper multiples than the rest of the gang. Um, so you can still buy growth growth companies, but at a reasonable price, at a cheaper price. And a good example now of that, he, he, on geopolitical side, you can look at some of the stocks, the same semiconductor stocks um, in China and Taiwan, Taiwan in particular, are trading at about half the PE multiples of those in the US. Now, a lot of that is for good reason, because of the policy action being taken by the US. Um, but you still, they, they still provide an opportunity um, for investors to take advantage of the long-term tr- trend at a, at a cheaper valuation. So I think there are multiple ways of which you, you can uh, take advantage of value. And the last thing I would say is most of the value opportunities which are best are those that are not obviously available. And so they can have high PE multiples, uh, but that's because earnings are either so depressed, so you need to look through the cycle at the earnings, or actually, there's been some change. And this is where the event-driven and value strategies are really important. So a company is going through a restructuring or a change of strategy. And there, again, the multiples can be really distorted. But when you look through it, actually, there can be a lot of opportunity um, embedded. And one example within our portfolios that we've we've looked at is in the small cap space in the US. Oh, sorry, in the UK. And so there, actually, uh, you're not taking a lot of UK risk. A lot of those companies are international revenues um and but because there's a, a sort of unloved uh, attitude towards the uk they're trading at very cheap valuations so you can buy cheap high quality companies with a monopoly in their um various um sectors um and yet uh, although the price earnings ratios are sort of mid uh, double digits um you're not pricing in the good news of what's actually happened at the underlying surface and i think that's what we're seeing a lot of in the last few years, there's been good fundamental improvement in those types of companies, but they're just so unloved that that hasn't reflected in the um, in the share price. So I think within the surface, there are a number of different ways to approach value, and those opportunities are quite pervasive. And I suppose the good news is we're starting to see outside the US, value companies are actually doing better. So J- Japanese value, as an example, is already rallying this year, um, although we've not seen it broad based within the US. You mentioned UK, you mentioned Japan, which instantly, if you are a dollar or euro investor, which is going to account for a large number of people, gives you a currency and currency risk. And that's generally there if you're going to be a global investor. And I suppose it becomes particularly acute when you have got uh, movement in interest rates in a way that we haven't had for a long, long time. And the uh, spreads between different interest rates being Vary, particularly when you factor in real interest rates when you've got inflation volatility. So I think there's a sort of a, a, a bigger mix of things that are changing in the relationship between currencies because of inflation volatility, because of interest rate volatility. So perhaps, Robert, I'm going to ask you to talk just generally about um, how we go about managing currency risk in in portfolios, I mean, you know, probably worth starting out just by talking about the ones that we most notice. I mean, you've mentioned UK, Japan, presumably versus dollar and, and euro, but can you just talk about how we think about it, what we do, what we don't do, what we find helpful, less helpful? I think the first point to say is uh, if you want to take advantage of the best opportunities anywhere in the world, which is what we're trying to do, Currency risk comes as a second factor. You look for the good opportunities, you find them wherever they lie. An important point about diversification is 
you want to avoid that home current home country bias. So investors, just because they're in a region, you don't want to just invest in those stocks. Um, you want to look where the opportunity lies and deal with the currency um, factors in a, in, a, in a secondary case. And that's really important because if you follow the other path and you end up chucking your portfolio full of uh, companies you know that are denominating your own currency, firstly, you're not getting rid of currency risk completely because actually those companies themselves have revenues and, and um, costs that are, can be in lots of different cu- uh, currencies. But secondly, that's one of the big ways that you can really come unstuck. And I think notably, we should say for Japanese investors, we're only just approaching where uh, the Nikkei was back in 1989. Now, if we just put that number back in people's minds, uh, a lot of people listening to this won't have even been born at that point, And you've had to wait that long for, for, the, um, for the price return to come back to where it was um, over a period of time. And that's the same in most stock markets around the world. I think we this stocks for the long run is true. It works out most of the time. But you can have to wait decades. Uh, same, same case would be after the 1930s. It took you... Uh, sorry, after 1929, it took you about 15, 20 years to make your money back in, in the US. In the UK now, whenever I hear in the morning um, the the FTSE 100 um, sort of price return number, it just reminds you it was back sort of the same number where it was in the year 2000. So again, even in our recent period of time, it's, you, you can go a long period of time before um, companies come back to where they were. So avoid home country bias, find the opportunities where they lie. And then you can deal with the currency risk. So I think that's the order in which we approach it. I think in terms of currency risk, it's worth saying um, it is a zero-sum game. So it's very different to investing in equities. You don't have that equities for the long run. Uh, You can rely on making a lot of mistakes, but you can still make money because the economy is growing. It is zero-sum, so it does make it harder. um, And you should be humble in, in, in the way you approach it. So I think we don't try and be currency traders trying to trade the currency the whole time. Now, there are certain factors which can help you um, get the right side of changes. Um, so I think it, as with any asset class, thinking about valuations is really important. Thinking about momentum, thinking about risk, um, uh, amongst others, and thinking about carry. Um, but of those, I think what helps you as a long-term investor is, if you think of the pendulum, currencies might swing around fair value. So fair value itself can move based on the relative productivity between different countries. But when you get to an extreme, you might not get the timing just right, but certainly you're going to um, uh, have some value on your side if you're on the right side of it. So it matters. Currency risk really matters. Your hedging policy, in the most of the time in the middle, you can either hedge or not hedge as long as you keep a consistent policy. When you get to an extreme in valuation, that's when you should really worry. And that's when we really take into account of hedging uh, the most. Now, why does that matter now is we're at one of those extremes. The dollar is pretty strong against most um, uh, currencies around the world. So, we're, And that's pretty been pretty consistent. And the dollar moves in these long duration bull and bear markets. So I think positioning for the next 10 years, when you're at that extreme, you want to be really conscious and protect yourself against the dollar weakening. So I think that's, that's one of the real um, things that we take advantage of. So dollar against the yen in particular, against sterling, against euro, it's it's um, pretty strong. But against the yen, it's basically as strong as it's been for a long period of time, about 60% undervalued against the yen. So that's a big, um, big dislocation that's in markets. 
So I think if we were to say why, why when we're looking at dollar yen, um, we're taking on some of the currency risks. We're not hedging the Japanese shares. Is because if you're a long-term investor, you can afford to take that view. You should get some appreciation from taking the yen currency risk as well as the the, the companies are cheap. Um, now, some investors like Warren Buffett are hedging out that currency risk. They don't need to take the extra um, risk uh, and and afford the extra return. And also other investors with a shorter time horizon. Because I think when we're talking about currencies, valuation helps in the long run. But in the short run, the best indicator of those factors is definitely momentum. Um, so uh, at the moment, um, that that's sort of where you'd, you'd position yourself. Now, I think the last factor I would say for, for the dollar and why it's really important, um, although we're saying medium term, the dollar is likely to weaken based on the value, relative valuations of where we are. And also that carry may be decreasing if we're seeing dollar interest rates um, decline. In the short run, uh, that recession risk is probably a bigger factor. So the good news in the la- sort of uh, the, the last um, uh, couple of weeks of November, we've seen the dollar weaken. That helps ease financial conditions, and that's been part of this rally of everything. But as actually recession does come to bear in the US, there is the threat of the dollar strengthening um, and it being a safe haven play. So. I think if we're thinking about the dollar weakening, so if that medium term horizon as we go into a new economic cycle. Yeah, I mean, that, that, actually, there's a huge amount in there. You, you made the point, Robert, about how uh, equities are a great asset class for the long run, but the long run could be very long. And clearly part of what we do here at CapGen is to help our clients stay in that long run game by managing currency risk, managing expectations, um, but the long run can be very long. But I'm going to park that as a as a parenthetical comment and come back a little bit to to, um, to to hedging and to dollar yen. I mean, there's a great trick in our industry at the end of the year to pick your, your hindsight trade. You know, if you could have known on the 1st of January 2023 what you know at the end of 2023, what trades would you have put on? And clearly one of the trades would have been to be short uh, yen and perhaps be short JGBs and long the Magnificent Seven because that would have given you uh, a, a, a tremendous return. Um, and it's been a sort of, st- if we pick on the yen in particular, it's been a sort of steady march upwards, generally speaking, of the of the dollar against the yen. I'm reminded of the uh, uh, escalator up, elevator down analogy, although Capgen, we always express it slightly differently because escalator up and elevator down implies a sort of smooth and controlled ride, and whereas the the imagery we use more is 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 is, is stairwell up. You're sweating as you walk up the stairs, and then lift shaft down when you're falling. It, you don't feel you don't feel controlled. And I suppose when I look at dollar yen, that's a bit what you're saying. The risk is, isn't it? Which is that you've had this pretty relentless uh, upward march of the dollar against the yen to a point of extreme valuation. We're nudging around that 150 mark, which we know historically has been a point where policymakers have intervened. And we've talked about why there are reasons uh, for the long run for the dollar to come down. And yet, and yet, you know, in the medium term, shorter term, if there's a recession or some bad news, people might go to the dollar. Uh, and, and so 
you're saying when you hedge, you hedge for those extreme risks rather than just trying to routinely take currency risk out of portfolios. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think just putting, putting those out, one, one thing that the yen is slightly different to the other currencies is the yen sometimes itself can be a bit of a safe haven. So the dollar yen might not respond as much. The, the dollar strength might be against um, other currencies more than the yen in a in that bad recession environment. I'll just park that there. I think the other point is um, thinking about currency intervention. That's when you can really come unstuck. We're talking about the factors because the, the, this is a market where the policymakers can make a big uh, make big interventions, which can can really make you come unstuck in the short term. Even though the market in the end wins, as we've seen against the the Bank of England. Um, in the early 90s. So I think, look, we're expecting dollar yen, there's going to be more policy action to come, this defence of of these these regions, and the market is going to test test the central bank and the the, um, Ministry of Finance in Japan out. So I think that's that's important on that that regard. Whether it happens slow or quickly, I think when the policy actions happen, that's when you get these big step functions in either direction. So suddenly, central bank intervenes, your, the, the currency can move very quickly. So when we're talking about the hedging, again, it's to think, um, if you're thinking of a long term, either, it, let's say you bought a property in, in sterling um, in uh, and, you're, and you're a non-sterling based investor, maybe take the sterling risk at the moment, because maybe sterling may weaken in the short run, but in the long run, um, you should get some value. Or the other way around, um, in a in an environment where sterling was really expensive, maybe that's the moment you hedge your currency risk. So I think the the moment of hedging is you just take advantage of those extremes. Or if you're in the middle and you want to take currency risk completely out of the picture, for some investors that's the appropriate thing. You just hedge and keep that hedge on uh, and just make it not not one of the factors you, you're concerned about. So I think most of the time that's it. It's either remove it, it as a um, a risk factor that you don't want to be concerned about. Or make sure you're the right side of the trade when you're on one of those extreme moves for a long-term investor. And most of the time, otherwise, you you don't really want the currency. Uh, it doesn't sort of it isn't a source of return. Um, the one thing I would say, though, having said there are these risks, and we're going to see weakening. Actually, there are risks for all fiat currencies, as we mentioned before. So actually, it's, it's less a, a concern about which currency you're in. It's being in companies with. Um, uh, with with per, uh, pricing power that can instate, maintain that um, flow of uh, cash flows into the future. That's going to be more important than having sort of fixed duration, uh, fixed assets, certainly in the medium term, if inflation becomes a risk. Um, so it's not necessarily the con- currency of choice, but actually not having bonds, having those um, assets which have uh, protection against um, higher inflation. Let's take a sharp turn, although you gave me a bit of a link there, Robert, in talking about buying a property in the in the UK because what I'd like to do is just switch us to talk about REITs which has come up in conversation uh, with clients quite a lot recently and I suppose what are what are what are clients seeing I think they're seeing two things really we're seeing clearly news from the property from the real estate sector which is in the round not positive and yet there's been a pretty dramatic falls in uh, prices of, of REITs. Now, I should say we are going to, in our next episode of Talking Capital, we're going to do a real estate deep dive with Ross Davis, our uh, head of real estate, who is actively on the ground, helping to manage, helping to buy, helping to sell 
uh, real estate assets. So that sort of granular detail, uh, uh, watch this space, it is coming is coming your way soon. But if we just step back to REITs for a moment, Robert, so there we are. We know there's bad news coming out of the real estate and property sector. There's been a very, very, uh, some quite dramatic falls in, in some REIT prices. Are REITs cheap? How do you feel about them at the moment? What, what are we actually doing? Yeah, so I think, look, real estate is pretty dislocated market. So if we're saying there's, there's been this shock wave of interest rates going up, and broadly, there's not been as much uh, pain as one might have expected, given the, the pace of increase. One of the real estate sector, one of the interest rate sensitive sectors, which there has been pain so far, is commercial real estate. So I think it is a it does look a distressed um, asset class at the moment. And we've seen that in terms of transaction volumes go down, prices are going down where there are transactions, and the assets which respond more quickly, clearly the liquid assets, the liquid funds, the REITs and the, the liquid um, vehicles, there we've seen prices go off con- uh, quite a long way. So whether in some cases, let's say 25 to 40% along those different REITs, not quite at the lows of 2020, but they, they're pretty, pretty low. Now, is it fair value or not is a pretty tough question because what real estate has faced, I think there are a, a couple or a handful of factors. Now, clearly, number one, real estate, um, the, the real estate sector repricing to higher interest rates just takes a bit of time. And there's still about two trillion or more of commercial real estate debt in the next couple of years that is coming up for refinancing. So the pain happens when you come to that moment where you've been borrowing at a fixed rate, it's been low, suddenly, you've got to reset to where higher valuations are. And we're going through that process. And that process takes a period of time. Um, so it's quite hard to say, are we at the moment where we're at the bottom? And how much now clearly a lot of bad news is priced into that REIT market already, because we're trading at discounts to NAV. But actually, the bad news is still to come. So um, it feels slightly early to be buying. Um, but uh, you're coming to that moment where things can potentially be more appealing. And certainly, one of the things that could save the day is if interest rates start to fall because of recession risk, that does provide some um, some support and some respite for those um, coming into that moment where they're going to have to reprice. Um, but I think importantly, when we look at that real estate debt market, um, lenders, uh, the banks are pulling back quite aggressively, but also the the non-traditional lenders that are that are coming in are being more picky about where they pr- provide their liquidity. So although there's still plenty of liquidity and people are looking at those real estate debt markets as ways to make money, um, you're not necessarily going to be able to get the liquidity you need, certainly in the the um, the lower quality properties. But I think that's where we see a big divergence. So even in London, which I'm sure Ross will talk about next um, next time, there's quite a lot of va- uh, vacancies, um, but actually they're concentrated in a small number of properties. So the really high quality properties actually are let pretty well, but some of the properties like in Canary Wharf are really, really struggling. So I think being selective um, in, in um, types of property, quality of property you're looking for, and even the sectors. So there are strong sectors, there are weak sectors, the office sectors facing the headwinds from um, from COVID and work from home. But actually, some of the themes like um, uh, student housing, data centers, um, life sciences have been really strong. Now, maybe they're too well priced. So more what we're looking for um, are looking for active managers who can take advantage of those attractive trends where they're still cheap. 
So, for example, we did one um, active manager uh, in in Iberia because there those trends work in your favor, but the properties you can still take advantage of cheap. So you, you do need to be active and um, uh, sort of look for look for value where where it lies. Um, so I think we're we're still at that moment, and I think the distress side we're trying to take advantage of, of is actually when those loans come to bear is trying to through our distressed uh, managers that we've made allocation to to try and take advantage of some of those situations in the next few years. So it looks pretty dire. There's a lot of difficulty um, in the uh, banking sector, which is is causing some of the problems in financing. But actually, it might not have the contagion. So if we're thinking from a macro viewpoint, uh, this is a bit unlike it being the property market where there's the bomb like in 08 that goes off and suddenly you're faced with a, a load of problems. Actually, a protracted period of distress is actually beneficial in that it might not cause as much macro mayhem, but those distress managers could take advantage of the situations in a more orderly way. So I think actually in many ways, having a really bad macro event and suddenly lots of policy stimulus, the the distressed opportunity could be quite compressed. Having an opportunity where the sector is really distressed, but it takes a period of time and certain lenders and and, and certain borrowers are um, are overstretched can be a much more fertile opportunity to take advantage of. So I think from that point of view, at the moment, we're concentrating on distressed. We're being cautious and not doing any real estate um, lending and using active managers. So finding those themes, those opportunities where an active manager can make a difference. And on the REIT side, when we do add back exposure, which we may do in the next 12 months, we'll certainly be looking at an active manager, given that big sector dispersion that's seen between the winners and the losers in this current environment. Robert, thank you very much. Uh, time is up. We do have Ross Davies with us for the next episode of Talking Capital. And to Robert's point, because he's looking at individual assets, there are some where there isn't an opportunity, but there are some, he feels certainly, where there, there are opportunities. So please join to hear more about that. Uh, thank you very much. You can subscribe to Talking Capital on all major platforms. Capital Generation Partners, LLP, is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and is registered as an investment advisor by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast and opinions expressed do not constitute investment advice and do not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or any other investment or product. Nothing said during this podcast should be construed as an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. All information and opinions expressed herein are current as of publication and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from Capital Generation Partners to the listener. Capital Generation Partners makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or of any of the information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect to direct or indirect loss, is expressly disclaimed. Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. This podcast may not be copied reproduce, further distributed to any other person or published in whole or in part for any purpose. Further information, including our privacy statement, can be found on our website at www.capitalgenerationpartners.com.